name is Michael Ramsden, and uh, it's my privilege to be able to bore you this afternoon. I've been given the subject matter of speaking about defending truth in the marketplace of ideas, and if I may, I'd like to, to start with one uh, story from just a couple of years ago um, for your imagination, and then I'd like to read a quotation um, from a journalist called Matthew Paris, who some of you may be familiar with, who often writes in The Times. A couple of years ago, uh, I was over in Asia. Um, I'll keep some of these details a little bit vague. Um, and while I was there, I was asked to, to speak uh, to the boards of one of the most well-known banks in the world. Um, it was to talk about the Christian faith in relationship to the gospel and the financial crisis which we were in the midst of uh, right then. Uh, if you can remember, there was a rumour going around at the point that the economy at that point in England was so bad, the Bank of England were going to announce a closing down sale, and hope had hit an all-time low. So we had 70 or so people roll up of the board of this, one of the largest banks in the world, together with some of their senior employees. And for an hour, I, I spoke about the financial crisis, the gospel, and what I thought Christians may uniquely have to say about it. One of the gentlemen who was there took notes into his Blackberry, he took rather a large number of notes into his Blackberry and sent it out to his colleagues. Now that evening, a church had invited me to, to speak on the same subject matter. And they said, we want to invite all the senior bankers in our particular country to come, but we have no idea if they'll bother coming. Um, but we're going to put on jazz music and a buffet, and hopefully we'll get 250 of them, but we might only get 10. I said, well, let's try and fail rather than not try at all. Now the email that went out at lunchtime went viral. And as I arrived, there were rolling tables out of the hall that we were sitting in. And so I looked at the organiser and said, ah, have you cancelled the whole thing? I take it no one's come. And he said, no, we, over a thousand people have come so far. We've cancelled dinner. We've cancelled jazz. We're reconfiguring the seating um, because all we can do is just fit people in for this. Well, that evening we had 1,380 mainly senior bankers from this particular country from right across the, the, uh, the region. And um, at the end of it, it was amazing to see 80 of them actually becoming Christians at the end of that event. Uh, if you may remember early 2009, a lot of people were feeling guilty about a lot of things. Uh, so, uh, a gospel of forgiveness uh, may be rather therefore struck home. That evening, I was sitting on the top floor of one of the most well-known hotels in that country, um, having a late-night drink with two people. And one of them said to me, that was amazing today. And then, I, and then he, he made various other comments. And I said, actually, it's pretty hard doing what we do. Because when I tell people that this is what we do for a living, their propensity is to disbelieve us and to think it's simply not possible that you could take the truth of a gospel into a setting at the highest level in a boardroom and for it to be seen as relevant or important. And the guy looked at me and he said, that's me. He said, when I heard you were going to do what you did this lunchtime, I thought, what idiot set up this meeting? Because whoever set it up is going to get into trouble. They're going to get fired. They're going to get disciplined. Other Christians in this bank will get into trouble too. You know, who thought it was a good idea to bring an evangelist in to speak to the board? He says, and I was there today, and I'm struggling to believe what just happened happened. And I said, if you're struggling to believe what happened today actually happened, imagine when you tell the story to people who weren't there. So my opening question, I suppose for everyone in this room, is can you imagine the truth of the gospel walking into 
whatever is the most critical, cynical, difficult, <coughs> hardened atmosphere that you can think of and making sense of the world and of the lives of the people who are in that room. Do you believe it is possible that the gospel is true to such an extent that it isn't just, doesn't just simply define a part of reality on the tabletop, but is the tabletop on which everything sets and could be shown to be so? Do you believe that's possible? So there's the story. Let me just read to you this article from Matthew Paris. And this is quite hard-hitting. If you want to read the entire article, you will find it on the archive on the Times, August 9th, 2003. Here's what he says. If there is one thing that comes clearly through every account we have of Jesus Christ's teaching, and Matthew Paris is an atheist, as I'm sure you know, it is that his followers are not urged to accommodate themselves to the age, but to the mind of God. Christianity is not supposed to be comfortable or feel natural. The mind of God contemplating the behaviour of man is not expected to be suffused with a spirit of whatever. As it happens, I do not believe in the mind of God, but Christians do and must strive to know more of it. Nothing they read in the Old and New Testaments gives a scintilla of support to the view that the God of Israel was an inclusive God or inclined to go with the grain of human nature. Much they read suggests a righteous going against the grain. Certainly it is true that Jesus departed from conventional Judaic teaching in the emphasis he put on forgiveness. But neither the story, for example, of the woman taken in adultery, nor the parable of the prodigal son, suggest a countenance to continuation of the sins of either. What these stories teach is that repentance is acceptable to God however late it comes, and that the virtuous should not behave in a vindictive manner towards sinners. That is a very different thing from a shoulder-shrugging shoulder -shrugging chuckle of different sto strokes for different folks. Christianity is inching its way up a philosophical cul-de-sac. The church stands for revealed truth and divine inspiration, or it stands for nothing at all. I remember uh, reading those words now, just over a decade ago, and uh, wishing that they'd been written by a Christian, uh, but very glad that they'd been written by such an eloquent and insightful atheist. And if you don't want to stand there, please feel free all the way to come down. You'll be able to snooze much more easily sat in one of these chairs reclined up against the back if you would like to do so. Um, please don't, you won't disturb me by moving around. When it comes to this theme that we have today of defending truth in the marketplace of ideas, I think it's true to say that many people who are Christians stand, feel that they're on the back foot. This is something exceedingly difficult to do. But what I also find interesting in my own travels and my own experience around the world has also been to meet the surprise of many non-Christians and indeed people of other faiths who wonder why Christians aren't more prepared to do it. And what I'd like to try to do is maybe start to bring, bridge a gap between these two and then allow you to ask me any question you want to. Um, I am capable of answering all questions today, the easy ones I will deal with, and anything that's too difficult for me to understand, my friend Lord Michael Hastings will take and answer for you uh, afterwards. <laughs> so let me just start by saying a few very basic things about truth, which I'm sure are familiar to all of you. But it has been a troubled one and a half centuries for the idea of truth. There was an attempt to try to limit truth into the field of science. Nothing is true unless you can scientifically prove it. As you all know, the difficulty with that view came, how do you scientifically prove the statement, nothing is true unless you scientifically prove it. Neither physics, nor chemistry, nor biology seem to be able to help us. The problem runs into very deep trouble very, very quickly. Now, the next attempt, of course, was to relativize it and say everybody has their own personal truth, and what's true for you is true for you. Of course, the difficult being then, at that point, how do you sustain that in any kind of meaningful way? When you say all truth is relative, are you saying it's, that's the truth for everybody, or is it just true for you? 
It's a very difficult problem to get yourself out of. It ultimately collapses. And then, of course, there were those who came along and simply denied that there was such a thing in the first place. There is no such thing as truth, which is exceedingly difficult to maintain, because when you say there is no such thing as truth, you're claiming it's true there's no such thing as truth. So if it's true there's no such thing as truth, then it's not true. But if it's not true there's no such thing as truth, then it's not true there's no such thing as truth. So what we've said is nothing but in a complicated way. Um, this is why the British philosopher Roger Scruton said, when someone tells you there's no such thing as truth, they are asking you not to believe them. So don't. Now, having said that, this attempt both to limit truth into a field of science or to relativise it, to rob it of its meaning, or simply to deny it outright, has in many ways continued to live on in people's popular opinion. Now that popular opinion is changing. I had the privilege of sitting next to a 17-year-old boy today at the prayer breakfast. And he said, what are you talking on? And I told him. And he said, that's fascinating. He said, many of my schoolmates have suffered a collapse of meaning in their lives and they believe there's no hope because they think there is no such thing as truth. I said, that's a very astute observation. You'll be absolutely correct in what you said. He said, what will you be saying? I just ran through those first three points with him. And before I finished each one, why each one of those moves fails, he jumped ahead of me and said, well, that can't possibly be true because of this. Yeah. And you only have to begin to experience the existential outworkings of what happens when you have a collapse of truth to generate a belief for people, a new group of people, who begin to think it's a very dangerous idea. And the number of people I meet who are teenagers, who are thoroughly un unimpressed with this line of reasoning, is huge. Now, when you get into people in their 20s and upwards, the confusion about truth is actually much more, much more acute. What I would like to try to do is outline for you one or two of the ways, on the more existential side, I've tried to deal with the collapse of truth and what it looks like in a way that may help you wherever you go as a way of reintroducing this idea back in. Because if the Christian faith isn't true, and if Christians feel they cannot stand up for a revealed truth that does not change, then we have a huge problem. Because in a culture where commitment has collapsed and people are looking something to be committed to that is bigger and greater than themselves, if there are no fixed points and no things of which we can be absolutely sure, we shouldn't be surprised if we see a corresponding lack of commitment. And if I had a free reign today, I would change my, type, my, my talk to you today in light of two conversations I had in London about eight or nine weeks ago. One with a retired British Army general where we had a long conversation and then I said to him, I meet so many young people today who are struggling with commitment in their 30s. And or, let alone in their 20s or in their teens. I knew what I wanted to do when I was a teenager. Now I meet people in their 30s, they're drifting through life. I said to him, how do you breed leadership in the absence of commitment? He put down his fork in the cavalry club and said, I was in charge of officer selection and training for the British Armed Services in the last three years of my service, and that was our number one problem. We couldn't breed leadership. Now, we are relating to truth differently now. Although the philosophical confusion remains... The practical fallout is huge. The collapse of integrity we've seen is enormous. The cynicism that it's bred is very, very widespread, especially in political processes. But even more interestingly than that has been shifting public attitude. A couple of months ago, I was asked to comment um, by BBC on something called the NATSAL. Now, some of you may know what that is. The NATSAL is the national, it's a national survey that looks at sexual attitudes to lifestyle. Uh, Margaret Thatcher introduced it as a survey of the British population to help set health policy in certain areas. We're the only country in the world that does something on this kind of scale. Tens of thousands of people are surveyed every 10 years, and the results are published. 
Well, the new NATSAL, the 10-year NATSAL, came out earlier this year. And one of the surprising findings was this. In the 10 years previously, one of the questions they asked was, is adultery a big issue? And three quarters, over three quarters of respondents said, this is no big issue and we shouldn't be worried about it. When they did it this year, over half of the people surveyed said it was a huge problem. So what the BBC wanted to talk about was, are faith communities more in touch with the public than the media? That was the question they put to me. Now we have a problem with that word faith community because what that means is people who normally believe things in the absence of truth. <laughs> so one of the first things that had to be dealt with very briefly was what do we mean by faith? And if faith is putting your trust in someone, the way in which we all put our trust in someone is on the basis of the truth that we see in them, the truth that they live. They are trustworthy. So if I were to say to you, I recognise various people in this room, they're my friends, and I, have, and I am prepared to put my faith in them, what I mean is I can rely on them, I can depend on them. They are trustworthy. So coming to the Natsal, as I was being bounded from one station to another, back to back, my opening comment for each of them was the same. This result in the Natsal shouldn't surprise us. A faithful friend is someone who keeps their promises and on whom you can rely. An unfaithful lover is someone who has broken those promises and on whom you can't rely. And if you've experienced the pain and the hurt and the brokenness that comes from that kind of unfaithfulness in your life, you'll realise why we rapidly conclude it's not a good idea for us. It's not helpful. We're living in a world where we have experienced that kind of pain of brokenness and the costs of it are very high. Many of you in this room would have experienced the breakup of relationship or of family or maybe a betrayal of a close friend. The results in our life are devastating. At about the same time, a couple of months ago, I was reading in the Financial Times a long article on the pursuit of happiness in which it talked about the fact that betrayal, lack of faithfulness in our lives is one of the primary causes of our unhappiness that we experience in this world. And it can cast very long shadows into our hearts and lives. What do we do about it? How do we overcome it? And the idea of being faithful, obviously, is another aspect of truth. Of being true to someone. Of being true to something. Now, this doesn't exhaust the content of truth. The philosophical debates are very, very important for very, very important reasons. And I think one of the best 15-minute summaries I think I've ever heard on truth was actually given by someone in this room called Os Guinness at something called Lausanne in 2010, and I'm sure that's recorded and available online, is that you're on why a high view of truth is very, very important. So that is an incredibly important area. But the practical fallout of a collapse of an understanding of how truth operates and of the moral consequences of truth is devastating in any culture. There was a, a TV program on a couple of years ago, I don't know if any of you saw it, called Lie to Me. Um, it actually was based off the real-life research of a very famous psychologist at Oxford University who now lives in the States and makes millions by advising governments and security services how to tell whether someone is lying. And what his research proved was it didn't matter if you were African, Asian, European, North American. If you were lying, you, had, you would be, having, you'd be exhibiting universal telltale signs regardless of culture. 
that no matter where you were raised, how you were educated, where you were from, if you knew how to read the face of what are now called micro-expressions, you could tell if someone felt shame or anger or guilt or whatever it was. And therefore, if you could recognise those signs, then it would be very helpful to you, especially in intelligence. You can see why the guys made so much money. So they made a TV programme about this guy called Lie to Me. It went through two series and then it got cancelled. I was very disappointed. I, I actually got to meet the person from the network that produced that series. And I said, I, where's the third series? He says, it's been cancelled. I said, why not? He said, only educated people like watching it and there isn't enough demand for intelligent programming. <laughs> A comment which reinforces one of my pet theories about the universe, that the total amount of intelligence in the world is fixed, but the population is growing. <laughs> now, as you would expect of a man who has spent his life studying how to tell whether people are lying or not, he's given some thought to what happens when you abandon the truth. And listen to what he has to say here in, uh, in one of the things he writes. Trust is a matter of faith, that the person who is trusted won't exploit that trust. Intimacy in close working relationships, romance and friendships, requires and in fact depends on trust. Yet it is well known that the last person to realise that he or she is being betrayed is the person suffering the betrayal. Why? Because the betrayed's trust blocks out recognition of any signs belying that breach of faith, all those signs that everyone else around them so easily picks up on. Once trust has been betrayed, can it ever be restored? Not always, and not by everyone. Even when the betrayal is forgiven, and the betrayed does not want to give up the relationship, it may still be very difficult to completely trust again. That is the price of lying about very serious matters, the loss of trust that may never be restored. Suspicion, on the other hand, the opposite of trust, undermines relationships and results in the suspicious person's misery. Let me just say that again. Suspicion, on the other hand, the opposite of trust, undermines relationships and results in the suspicious person's misery. All of us face choices about it. Do we, based on faith, take the risk of being misled by trusting? Or do we take the risk not only of disbelieving a truthful person, but never being able to establish close connections because of chronic suspicion? Now, I think he's absolutely bang on. A collapse of truth and of the moral things which are entailed within truth inevitably leads to a collapse of meaningful relationship. Who do you trust? On what basis? Now, as a Christian evangelist, I'm incredibly optimistic about when I read these things. Um, I think there are about 100 of you in this room, so when I leave from here, I'll be sending out a report that 110 people enjoyed every word I said. <laughs> now, that's just the nature by which I am wired. Because if the Christian gospel has anything to say, it must have something to say about the nature of truth, the character of truth, the moral requirements of truth and what happens in the face of the collapse of truth. The gospel both speaks and reveals. Now, this is where I think, I had no idea what uh, Justin would be saying. Um, actually, I shouldn't have said that. I should have said, he asked me for my advice before he says anything. <laughs> this is how, certainly, what I took away from this morning the scripture is always talking about truth and love. Not just the fact that there is a truth, but it also talks about loving the truth and it also about, talks about truth in love. Now, sadly, that second phrase has been hijacked by 
of normally Christians when they say, I need to tell you the following truth in love, which normally means, well, A, there will be no love. And sometimes there won't even be any truth either. <laughs> now, of course, there's no need to preface your remarks if you're speaking the truth in love, because it should be obvious that the person, but for, with the person with whom you're speaking, that it's spoken with care and with love, and that you're simply in, care, concerned about what is true. The trouble is, is that when it comes to talk about defending truth today, we very often play those two qualities against each other as if one went against the other. So we feel we're forced to make a choice. Are we loving and kind? In which case, truth needs to take second place. Or will we tell the truth? In which case, well, love is going to have to take a back seat. Now, biblically speaking, no such convenient solution is offered to us. But do take the following with me. I'd offer you to close your eyes, but you're sitting next to strangers and your wallet may disappear. So just, you have no idea who you're sitting next to. It's a broken and fallen world. Imagine the following with me, just for a moment. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye a thoroughly uncompromising Christian. One without a hint of compromise. What's the first picture that comes to mind? Is it of someone hard? Difficult, awkward, prickly, uncomfortable. It's interesting, isn't it, that we're told in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Remember that list? So let's not be compromised about that. Let's be thoroughly uncompromising in our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's interesting, isn't it? The very fact that our imaginations are automatically drawn that way shows how we've driven a wedge which is, easy, which is an easy solution to a much more complex problem. Because truth and love have to coexist together. They don't moderate each other, but they do inform each other. And if we can find a way to recover that message, now we're into, I think, a way in which we can begin reconnecting truth in the marketplace of ideas. I talked earlier about the betrayal, breach of, in the relationship. How is it restored? Well, it's normally restored by saying the words, I'm sorry. Not, I'm sorry if I've hurt you, which is how husbands normally apologise to their wives. And basically means, I'm feeling very sorry for myself right now that you're so upset. <laughs> but hopefully this will go away soon. <laughs> the way a breach of trust and a collapse of truth in our inner life is dealt with is first and foremost by confession. I am sorry. I am wrong. There's no justification. And I shouldn't have done it. That is the beginning. When the confession isn't complete, it's very difficult, isn't it, to move into relationship. I'm sure none of you have done this. I know I've been guilty of this, but I'm sure all of you here are so far better than me where you minimise your apology, holding back something of the truth, because if the whole truth came out, the possibility of forgiveness inches ever closer towards zero. But it makes for a very uneasy peace, doesn't it? Because in the back of your mind, you can't help but wonder, what if the rest of the truth comes out? What will it do to this relationship then? Christian truth is very uncompromising. And Jesus spoke about it very plainly. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
And what's more, he says, that men and women prefer to remain in the darkness. Why? Well, because if you step into the light, everything will be revealed. And so we prefer the shadows, where we can find more inner comfort. But it's a false comfort. So at one level, the Christian gospel is very uncompromising when it talks about truth. It shines a bright light and it reveals things as they really are, including about our own hearts, our own lives, at the very deepest level. <coughs> That's how it operates. But it does more than that, because it doesn't simply reveal. This truth is also capable of transformation. You step into the light not simply to be exposed, but to be changed, <coughs> to be regenerated, to be made new, to be forgiven, to be born again, to be whatever language you want to take from the New Testament. In other words, the way God's truth works is also regenerative. It does expose, but it also delivers and changes. I remember speaking in Pakistan once, and a psychiatrist, clinical psychiatrist, asked me a question towards the end of my talk, and I'd never been asked one quite like it before. He said, you talked about our need to trust God in your talk. Do you think that God can trust us? I remember looking at him saying, that's a fascinating question. I said, you know, in the Gospel of John in chapter 2, it says that Jesus Christ did not entrust himself to the crowd because he knew what was in the hearts of men. But if you ask me, he does ultimately want to trust us. But before he can trust us, he needs to first transform us. And that is the hope that the Gospel brings. Exposure of truth, not for the purposes of humiliation, but for regeneration. Which is why it is humbling, but not destroying, to become a Christian. Of course it's humbling to realise where you were wrong and to admit it. But where the hope comes is that this same truth is able to change, to transform. That is why Christian relationship should be marked out by depth. Knowing the depth with which Christ has forgiven me informs the way in which I have to approach my forgiveness with others. It should bring a hope and it should bring a light. My concern is, is that we're living in a world where we're so trying to minimize the requirements of truth and soften the edges of it that the cleansing power of it within the gospel is being lost. We don't need people on high horses telling us how bad we are. The Holy Spirit, as far as I last checked, had a job description of convicting people as to sin, righteousness and judgment. He's very, very good at it. And wherever the light of the gospel shines, that is what it shows. And the reason why we dare not try to dim the brilliance of that flame is that as everyone who steps into the light, they remain in the light so that what everyone can see that what has been done has been done by God. I love John chapter 3 from verses 17 to 21. I know we all memorize 16. We could do with memorizing all the way down to the end of the 21st verse because there is such a promise there. To defend truth in the marketplace of ideas, we live now in such a broken culture, in many ways such a meaningless culture, that the light that the gospel brings, I think, so long as we're prepared to be uncompromising in the way we live it, 
as long as we understand what that means, uncompromising in the way we speak it, is the greatest hope that we will ever have. Uh, let me just end with, with one last story. Everyone, including myself, especially myself, I know, are capable of defending the truth of the Christian gospel in a way that makes it ugly. Now, this has sadly happened because some of us have managed to turn rudeness into a spiritual gift. <laughs> and what we do is measure the effectiveness of our faithfulness to the gospel by the number of people who have been set, upset along the way. The tendency, therefore, is to swing the other way. It is possible... And if this is all you hear today, I'll, this is what I'd urge you to quote. It is possible for the truth of the gospel to enter the most unlikely realms and for it both to be seen, recognized, and bring transformation. A few years ago, I'll be going to this country again in a few months' time. Um, the, uh, it was mentioned this morning. I was speaking to a group of militantly minded people uh, who were armed. I always find that improves the quality of my presentation. <laughs> I, I'm a romantic enough to, to like the idea of Christian martyrdom, but there's a difference between shot for the gospel and being shot because you preach the gospel so poorly. <laughs> the guy who arranged the meeting said, look, Michael, I want you to speak to these people. Uh, they were actually involved in the training of the people who blew themselves up in London on our buses a few years ago. He said, they want, they're prepared for you to come and talk about why you think the Christian gospel is true and to answer their difficult questions. If you go, we will send eight men with machine guns to look after you. And I said to the guy on the phone, look, given the audience I'm speaking to, eight men with machine guns will not help. <laughs> but we did take one guy, an armed guard, and he stayed in the car outside while we were on the, on the inside. There were 50 people in the room, in a room less than half the size of this, so it was tight. Towards the end of the meeting, as I was explaining about how forgiveness operates within the Christian faith, revelation of our sin but a dealing of our sin on the cross and the payment of it through the person of Christ and through his resurrection from the dead some of the audience started crying and I made the mistake of acknowledging their tears now there were 13 women in the room 37 men and because I'd noticed a woman crying even though all you could see were her eyes she took the veil and pulled it over her head because in that culture if you're crying and you're a woman you can't show your eyes at that point various other people covered their eyes too and I noticed that some of the men were crying too. I, this is, I find this even in England. Many people listen to me and they cry as they listen. That day in that room, 13 of those people turned to Christ. They were actively involved in bombing and shooting. And the interesting for me as a British citizen including targeting our own armed services in that part of the world. Four years, five, 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 six years on from that point, a few of them asked for training about how to share the gospel. Last year, that group in that country 
gave away 44,500 Gospels. They only give Gospels to people who, after they've heard them preach, pray with them to become Christians. And they gave away 44,500 last year. The truth of the Gospel is capable of transforming hearts and lives. The tragedy is, in the West, we struggle to imagine it. We struggle to imagine it is relevant and just as true in the boardroom, the terrorist council, as it is amongst people who may be predisposed to it. But it's still true, because it's true. And it's still capable of changing lives. We have to find the manner with which to say it, and the grace with which to say it, and the conviction with which to say it. But we must make a stand for truth in today's marketplace for ideas.